This is mutual. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Hello, strange world. Welcome to the Aldergate Papers. My name is Adrian Ward, and these singed and crumpled pages are my diary, a record of the final days of my former life. I remember almost nothing of the story they contain. All I know is that it ends with me very nearly being killed, and that it may not be entirely unrelated to some of the strange things that seem to be happening lately. If there's any truth in the odd fragments of memory that I just can't seem to shake, there are things you deserve to know. Things that may help you to understand what's going on, and what's coming. We find our hero under the influence of a cocktail of exhaustion and anxiety. He may not have been thrilled at the prospect of a reunion with his estranged pal, Sammy Braden, but the news that she's just been murdered, and practically on his brand new doorstep, has had an unsettling effect upon his already ramshackle psyche. The 51st Vice-Chancellor of Aldergate University seems to have made it through his first day of school, but not, perhaps, entirely in one piece. This is Day 2, Part 1, Present Fears and Horrible Imaginings. It is the second day of the return to Aldergate. The time and place of writing is round about nine o'clock at night, in the Arkwell Privy Library, atop the manse of the Vice-Chancellor. We begin. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous you have been, and are. Tired as doom it also, but fatigue has sharpened your senses, not dulled them. You hear things tiptoeing about downstairs, and scrabbling up in the gallery, slipping softly through the cardboard corridors of Sir Reggie's tomb. A susurrating swarm of semi-silent something scuttles stealthily behind the stones of the wall against which you've backed your chair. It's nothing, of course, nothing at all. The wind under the door a mouse crossing the floor. You're home again, safe and mostly dry. You've got plenty of lovely electricity, though there only seems to be the one little reading lamp in this whole library, at least the bit of it you can get to, and... Now you've done it. You took your eye off that funny shadow in the corner by the stairs, and something's gone. Thump. If you look up again now, you will just have time to see the awful, 
whatever it is, come gyring and gimbling toward you before you are utterly killed. Ugh, humbug. <sighs> Twist, man, it's only just gone nine o'clock. You'll have a rough night of it if you work yourself into a quivering jelly at this stage. Buck up. Focus on the task at hand. And if something with tentacles does come flopping out from behind the radiator, well, sell your life as dearly as you can. <sighs> Sweet misery, what a day. Well, you've every excuse for a few jangled nerves. Having people jump at you in your own bloody kitchen, it would jangle anyone. Besides, you haven't slept properly in thirty-odd hours, and things were already pretty uncanny before all the murder talk got started. No wonder you're adding imaginary ghoulies and ghosties to the platoon that were no doubt already banging about in this strange old place. Oof. You must get some rest tonight, or you really will go mad. But how? At the moment, you're about a million miles from tucking into Great Nature's second course. Deep breaths, that's what you need. Channel your chakras, bring balance to the force. Let the springs unwind a bit, or they'll snap and come shooting out your eyeballs. If only Kirk Bryce were here with a set of those meditation beads he gave you when he wanted you to front in the capital for that techno-ashram idea. All connects with all. The Internet of Things, the Oneness of Things. Bryce always says that the secret to good sleep is good exercise and good deeds. If you strangled him with his own japa mala, you'd get two for the price of one. Ugh. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. Write your journal, and see if you can't find a bit of perspective. Stick today down on a page where you can look at it properly, and see if you can't see some sort of sense in it. Yes. Start with this morning, and that mysterious letter. It sounds rather romantic when you put it that way. The mysterious letter. But mysteries are a dime a dozen these days, and frankly, you're getting a bit fed up with them. Today was chock-a-block with the things, starting with the one that led you to discover that ML in the first place. It started right here, right where you're sitting now. Well, same chair, though you hadn't yet had the sense to shove it back against the wall for safety. You had just set aside your first journalistic effort, and were watching the light grow in the high windows of the library. Tired, but contented, you were enjoying a sort of drowsy companionship with the unseen souls whom you could hear bustling about their early business. Then, just as your last candle sank into a puddle in its saucer, the penny finally dropped. A gentle clatter of morning activity is all very well in Manhattan, where there's seventeen people per square inch, and you had to buy out your whole floor just to escape from your neighbor's sex lives. In Aldergate, however, where the architecture was designed to shrug off trebuchet fire, it means that somebody's in your bloody house. 
This realization, when it connected, sent you rocketing to your feet. Then you just stood there stock still for a minute or two, quivering like an aspen, and, eventually, feeling like an ass. After all, stranger in a strange land that you are, you simply hadn't the requisite data to grok the situation. On the one hand, when a chap finds himself invaded by burglars and assassins, he's got to take action, what? Make a grab for the poker and prepare to repel borders. On the other hand, however, for all you know, it may be a time-honored custom at Aldergate for important callers to come barging into the manse for an early morning chat with the VC, in which case they might rightly object to being ambushed and bludgeoned by a madman in a dressing gown. Friend or foe? No way to know, not without having a look. Like the poor cat in the superposition, the prowler's condition remained indeterminate until observed, and your brain, if you care to call it that, waved the white flag. You stuck there, frozen and bleary-eyed on the rug, equally unequal to facing any possible outcome. Then... Um, sorry, that was meant to be the front door slamming shut. Uh, anyhow. Then, from down below, you heard the front door slam. And, with the courage of one who suspects that the chance for heroism has passed, you sprang into action. You cinched the dressing gown about your loins, stepped into your still damp zardellis, seized a paper knife of eastern design from the reading table, and made your cautious way downstairs. You know, you're a strange creature, self old boy. You couldn't entirely shake the idea that this was the Manus Orkaido, come to expunge you at last. But even in the moment you realize that Ultirat doesn't slam doors when there's a perfectly good ceiling to drop in through. Still, suppose you had surprised some sort of dangerous burglar, bent on picking up the Grand Theft Antiquities game where Sir Reggie left off. Perhaps you could have offered to open his mail for him. Meanwhile, any esteemed colleagues awaiting an audience would surely have been impressed by a chap who turns up for his first day on the job, wielding a golden dagger in a bathrobe in soggy Oxfords. Anyhow, you worked your way down, from the library to the third floor, and from the third floor to the second. Real ninjas typically prefer shoes that don't go squish at every step, but you remained in stealth mode, keeping your knees bent and checking your corners like a good little commando, until you reached the spot on the first landing where you'd left your suitcases. There you paused to listen, but the only sound to be heard in all the manse was your own stomach. Traveling always kills your appetite. Insomnia buries it, and the half-tab of dextro you'd allowed yourself had been dancing on its grave low these many hours. Still, between high excitement and low blood sugar, your head had gone a bit swimmy. Satisfied you were alone, off you trotted to the kitchen, with your heart and stomach set on that wheel of bitter storico. There, on the table, you saw the mysterious letter. Yes, the mysterious letter. It may not be much of a letter, as letters go, 
but what it lacks in letterness, it more than makes up for in mysteriosity. Your unknown visitor had penciled it on a paper towel, evidently from the robe by the kitchen sink, and left it where a hungry V.C. couldn't possibly miss it. It reads thus. Um. Please note that the following is written in all capital letters. Four lines, zero punctuation. Um. Stop everything and come at once. He came back last night. I think I did something stupid. The fuzz must not find out. What do you make of that? Not much, sadly. Not then, and not now. Dashed frustrating, really. Plenty of clues lying about, but they don't add up to anything. Not that you can see. Take the writing, for example. It's... well, it's bad is what it is. Not bad like a chap with bad handwriting. More like something from the copybook of a child who's not quite sure what to do with the fiddly bit on the capital G. Peculiar, no? And as for the message itself, you can't make head or tail. You read it backwards. You read it forwards. You turned it on its side and held it up to the light. Then you set about the thing in earnest. You went back upstairs, rolled up your sleeves, and fired up sibling. Then you... Um... Yes, uh, here follows about a page of speculation and analysis. A couple of pages. I tried shifting the message, uh, transposing it, uh, Playfair, Pigpen... I even seem to have tried to brute-force it against Project Gutenberg to see if it was a block cipher. I'll spare you the details. You must remember that this, the story of Adrian the Amateur Cryptographer, was written down by Adrian the Sleep-Deprived Bundle of Nerves, and is now being told by Adrian the Somewhat Embarrassed of Himself. Anyhow, I rattle on in a fraught sort of way until suddenly something goes... What the twist was that? Calm? Now, calm. Everything's all right. Quiet now. Perhaps you nodded off. Perhaps it's the plumbing. Could be the plumbing. You don't know what sort of noises plumbing makes. You're not a plumber. Could be any number of things. Anyhow, the manse is ancient. Old houses make noises. You know that. Everybody who's ever watched a horror film knows that. Could have been the wind. Yes, the wind. That's good. Good orthodox scapegoat, the wind. Very popular with silly chaps in strange old houses who spend their final moments reassuring themselves rather than sprinting for the drainpipe. Oof. Well, dream or demon, it picked a good moment to interrupt you. You'd wandered pretty far off topic. You do that when you're tired. First you get long-winded, then you get silly. Then you start getting paranoid, over-connecting things, until you end up looking for a street corner to rant on. No time for that now. Diary to write. 
You've got to catalogue the jaggedy jigsaw pieces of your day and your life before you can pack things up and go to bed and or your doom. Yes. Anyhow, that letter. What's the point of it? That was what hounded you as you gave up and stuck it into your dressing gown pocket to keep Sir Reggie's pipe company. Obviously, whoever had left the thing expected you to see right through it. But, well, your failure was at least partially theirs, and there was nothing you could do but carry on as if you'd never found it in the first place. Still, it galled you as you made your way back to your fallen luggage. You fretted and pondered as you struggled with socks in the murky half-light of a winter's dawn. You spun wild theories about the meaning of it all, leaping from half-baked conjecture to half-baked conjecture, like a mountain goat in a slapdash pastry shop. You dressed on autopilot, and just goes to show how distracted you were, just slipped into the first thing that came to hand. Worked out all right, at any rate. You ended up inside the Kincaid Gabardine. Not a bad choice, winter weight, and natty enough to offset the informality. You don't entirely fancy yourself in tan check, but worse things happen at sea. The Cordovan Trimbles were a daring choice, but really, for all the attention you were paying, you're lucky you didn't stomp off in your galoshes. Hmm. That letter. Yes. Looking at the thing squarely, there were only two possibilities. If it was a cipher, you hadn't the key, and that was an end to it. On the other hand, if it wasn't a cipher, it must have been written in incredible haste, by somebody excited beyond cogency. If that was the case, well, what then could you deduce? 1. Something had happened. Something that required your urgent attention. 2. Somebody, somebody preferring the male pronoun, and presumably known to yourself, had returned from somewhere to somewhere, apparently in defiance of expectations. 3. A second somebody, somebody with a key to your front door, had been prompted by this unforeseen return to do something or other, something they regret, or at least would prefer be kept from the attention of the police. Hmm. This far you could venture with confidence. Beyond, you were fogged and at a loss. So you shoved a chunk of bitter into your face, just the worst thing you could have done, and while you were holding your mouth under the tap, you developed a vague sort of idea that it was something to do with Sammy. The reference to Johnny Law must have put it into your head. In that light, the idea that he came back last night was positively blood-curdling. You've shown yourself unable to cope even with imaginary murderers, let alone the genuine article. But no, it just didn't square. Anyhow, you'd more or less concluded that your mystery scribbler had to be Baz. She's the only one who knew you were here, at least that's what you thought. And she's one of nature's few creatures whom you could believe simultaneously thoughtful enough to leave a note and oblivious enough not to realize when she speaketh in riddles. Mysteries. You can keep them. 
pulling on the Chesterfield, you had half settled on the idea that Sir Reggie had turned up again, and that Baz had panicked, killed him, and needed your help getting rid of the body. So much for sleepy university life, what? Ah, well. And after all, Grand Vice-Chancellorly legacies are forged in fire. Send in the sturm, and double the drang. If Aldergate and her university should last for a thousand years more, vice-chancellors to come will pass your portrait and shudder. <laughs> oh, speaking of those portraits, you ought to do a bit of research into the illustrious lineage to which you're the latest addition. Last night you dropped your keys into the upraised cup of the little bronze Ganymede by the front door but you didn't realize until this morning that you did it right under the ferocious nose of the original Vice-Chancellor of Aldergate. Those portraits of your predecessors that run all the way up to the library also line both sides of the entrance hall, and it all starts with that chap, a Mr. Edmund Darkwell. Striking-looking fellow, tremendous broad brow, suggestive either of genius or hydrocephalus, and a lantern jaw against which armies might dash themselves in vain. He also seems to have had a flair for the dramatic. Most chaps could hold a stick and a plate without making a big production out of it, but old Eddie's got his arms spread to about forty-five degrees from the vertical, sable robes hanging like wings. He may possibly be Batman." Not exactly handsome, but a whole faceful of character. Judgmental, too. He doesn't seem terribly taken with this Adrian Ward, Johnny. That mighty jaw is clenched, the immense brow deeply lined with thought. He's too polite to say anything, but he looks disappointed in you. Never mind. Don't assume the worst. Perhaps he's just uncomfortable. For reasons best known to himself, the first vice-chancellor of Aldergate University posed for his portrait sitting on a big iron-bound box thing, a sort of armored traveling trunk, and he seems to feel every rivet. His successor is sitting on it, too, in the next portrait along. She doesn't seem to mind so much, though, probably because she's got a suit of armor on. Not entirely academic, but perhaps she was making a point. It was 1187, after all, and the world was still the world. Eleanor Gaunt, her frame calls her. She seems to have kept her seat for over two decades, before handing the university's reins to Fatima Aldin. 1207. Aldin. That would have been prime crusading season. Trust the Office of Invitation to tag along and loot the local mines while Dick I looted the bodies. That must have been awkward. Your Aldergate history is a bit rusty, but there was that to-do over that BBC docudrama thing, the one about the Jewish Londoners who got out just ahead of the Lionheart's purge and wound up helping build Chamber College. Oh, ah, School of Sanctuary. That's right, and Radigan College was cross, because that's what they'd called themselves back when they were hoovering up rich Catholics out from under Henry VIII. <laughs> that's the history of Aldergate writ small. Always do the right thing, 
when there's a ton of cash and highly educated free labor in it for you. And if you can twit a monarch into the bargain, so much the better. Sir Reggie always said, privilege needs exercise to stay strong. Well, the privilege of the INTE has certainly flexed its muscles over the years. Ah, yes. A quick historical footnote here. The INTE is the right of jus non trahi extra that Aldergate was recorded by old Henry Fitzempress. Most of the old British universities had one. Basically gives them the right to look after themselves without interference from the civil authority. The difference is that, while Cambridge and Oxford gradually ceded theirs over time, Aldergate has clung on to its independence like grim death, and has not been shy about defying king and country when the mood suited. Anyhow. That's nothing to be ashamed of, is it? Even if the wages of virtue have been handsome, a lot of good has come of it. Rattigan, obviously and the TAM Center for Hebraic Studies at Chamber. The Oxley School of Humane Criminology at Bridge House is supposed to be pretty good as these things go. Really, quite a lot of the university was born out of defiance of something or other. Newgrave College grew out of the makeshift hospitals, thrown up to receive the plague victims that Cambridge turned away. What could be nobler than that? Oh, and you mustn't forget Bucky. Perfect case in point. Back in the 40s, the old Buckminster Experimental Manufactory gave refuge to a most distinguished mob of scientists and engineers from both sides, the ones who weren't too keen on their work going to turbocharge the engines of war. The Cowards College didn't win Aldergate many friends at the time, although there were rumors that quite a lot of Bletchley Park's best work actually happened in the vasty brick halls just off Faymarket Square. Bad old Winston rumbled about interning the lot of us, but ended up getting the worst of it with Jamie Ambrose. One of those stories that gets better with the telling, no doubt, but allegedly the silly fellow made a crack, at some state do, about preferring soldiers who didn't bleed till they were shot, and Ambrose came back by noting that the PM had been one of those soldiers who'd never bled at all. Not quite fair, and Winnie didn't like it one bit. But, of course, Ambrose was best pals with Montgomery, and had left three fingers at Verdun. So, Aldergate and Buckminster sailed serenely on, Churchill merely dismissing us as the rotten den of buggers and gollywogs. <laughs> to his credit, and to the point, well, it's not part of the university as such, but the den of buggery, down Garton and Perseway, has been an Aldergate institution for longer than a dozen of the colleges. 1564, a two-fingered salute to Queen Liz. Anyhow, the point is, you're not the only VC who's ever thumbed his nose at the powers that be. You're joining a long and glorious tradition. Well, mostly glorious. Yes, always another side to the story. Pretty close to home, too, all things considered. <laughs> close. It was your home for your first two years at Aldergate. Once upon a time, back before the med schools all consolidated into the Weatherby Medical Center, dear old Eldon House played host to a few 
guests from St. Vale's across the river. Well, flout enough laws and standards, and you're bound to flout the wrong ones from time to time, eh? Any institution with as much history as Aldergate has can't help picking up a few blots on its escutcheon. Looking at the thing squarely, some jolly fine omelettes have come from the breaking of a few unfortunate eggs. It's easy to point and play, oh, if only, but if the old lion hadn't unshackled the university from state jurisdiction, groundbreaking discoveries and life-saving innovations might have languished for centuries. And yet... <sighs> and yet... There's a picture hanging on the west wall of room 46 of the British Museum. It's a 15th century woodcut, and while its creator was only a middling sort of artist, one might have wished that he'd been a great deal worse. The picture is titled, Ye Aldergate Cure. The museum has helpfully subtitled it, Vivisection of a Madwoman at Eldon College. What's past is past. And yet, even centuries after St. Vale's Independent Hospital for the Afflicted was swallowed up by Vale College, the Eldon House porters were still taking bribes to smuggle in doctors, alienists, and thrill-seekers, witnesses to the birthing pains of modern medical science. The twist of it is that some things really don't change. You can't help recognizing the anatomy theater in the picture as the same hall where you used to go to get lectured by old Dr. Kilbury. <laughs> 5 a.m. every Sunday, Sammy cursing you because she had to hike all the way from McNaughton, whilst you set your alarm for 4.53 and slouched down to the underground amphitheater in your pajamas. Oof. Memory falters and is usurped by commemoration. There's a little bronze plaque there now, just outside the door. And a print of that very woodcut, magnified, so you can really see the look in the woman's eyes. How long had she been on that table, do you suppose? In a moment like that, you would expect the mind and the eyes to focus themselves upon the here and now, upon the quiet circle of learned persons and their instruments. Or, if not on them, then on the promised future, the blindness of horror, or fury, or madness, or fear, or even the emptiness of resignation. And yet... She must have seen the artist there, up in the gallery, outside the halo of lamps, up where you and Sammy used to sit. Her eyes must have held his, or he would not have carved as he did. It would have been monstrous of him to have inflicted that look upon posterity, if he had not endured it himself. <sighs> That's quite enough ancient history for the moment. On with the diary. Back to this morning. Yes, this morning, in the Battle of the...
Well, then, unknown intruders and cryptic messages are hardly the way one likes to start a big day, but these alone seem hardly sufficient to have driven our hero to the edge of nervous collapse. What else does Aldergate have in store for its newly arrived vice-chancellor? We shall just have to see, shan't we? Join me every second Sunday at thealtergatepapers.com. Find the Altergate Papers on iTunes as well, and spread the word, won't you? This may be my story, but I fear that it's likely to become everybody's problem. Until next time, I am and shall remain your humble servant, Adrian Ward. You're listening to Tuesday Terrors on the Mutual Audio Network. Tomorrow is our weekly anthology for science fiction and fantasy as Lothar Tuppen brings you Wednesday Wonders. Subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed for every day of amazing audio or find the Wednesday Wonders feed in your favorite podcast player. And thank you for listening, everybody. This is the Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.